Diplomatica, a journal of diplomacy and society. In the following, you'll hear the introductory statements of the first conversation in the series Biographies of Interwar Isms, recorded on the 8th of March 2022. Enjoy. I'm uh, delighted to, uh, to introduce what is the first conversation in a series called uh, Biographies of Interwar Isms. The idea of the concept is quite simple. It's uh, to use the biography or biographies as a prism to explore the many isms of the interwar period, bridging it with its 19th century roots and its uh, 20th century and 21st century legacies. Um, the uh, series has been organized uh, by the Global Biography Working Group, GLOBIO, uh, the Center for Modern European Studies at the University of Copenhagen, uh, and the New Diplomatic History Network, and last but not least, the International History Department of the LSE. I won't say much else, uh, except I really, I am really looking forward to this, and uh, hand the word over and the introductory remarks to uh, Victoria Phillips. Please, the word is yours, Victoria. Thank you so much, Hakan, and thank you all for coming, and thank you for your interest. Um, and um, uh, I want to thank all the organizers and um, co-sponsors. And um, Tom Ellis is here from the London School of Economics, who is um, uh, head of the Americas cluster. I'm representing the Cold War cluster. Um, and um, so we thank everybody for their interest. Um, uh, I'm here to introduce um, our two speakers um, and moderate. Um, as you all know, this is being recording, recorded, um, and it will go up on the Global Bio Biography Working Group webpage, and it will be made into a podcast as well. Um, so please feel free to share the links um, with um, friends, families, and, and colleagues um, once it's once it's done. Um, uh, what we'll do is uh, we're a relatively small group, um, so um, we will. I'll, I'll take questions if you want to unmute yourself, or feel free to put your questions um, in the chat box, and I can begin to moderate them um, after we hear from our speakers. Um, and um, uh, Professor Zip and uh, Cook will speak each um, for about uh, 10 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes. Um, and then we'll have a discussion and Q&A, and uh, the entire program will last about an hour and 15 minutes. Um, so um, we look forward to a grand, a grand discussion um, and a very timely one. Um, so um, in the order in which they'll speak, I'll introduce the two of them. Um, Blanche Wiesencook is Distinguished Professor of History and Women's Studies at the John Jay College and the Graduate Center of the City of New York. Her definitive biography of Eleanor Roosevelt, Volume 1, The Early Years, Volume 2, The Defining Years, and Volume 3, The War Years and After, were published by Viking. Um, and the trilogy was called Monumental and, Ins and Inspirational, a Grand Biography by the New York Times Book Review. Volume one was on the New York Times bestseller list for three months, received many awards, including the 1992 Biography Prize from the Los Angeles Times. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt, Volume Two, was on the was also on the um, New York Times um, bestseller list. Um, 
Uh, and volume three was named a New York Times notable book of 2016 and was one of NPR's 10 best books of 2016. The author of numerous articles, Professor Cook's books include The Declassified Eisenhower, um, which is one of my favorite books, um, which must come back into print, um, and her books um, and a New York Times book review notable book of 1981, and Crystal Eastman on Women in Revolution with Oxford University Press. Um, for more than 20 years, she produced and hosted her own program, um, originally called Activists and Agitators, and Women and the World in the 1980s. Professor Cook has appeared frequently on television on such programs as The Today Show, Good Morning America, C-SPAN, Book Notes, and McNeil Learer, where she participated um, in the joint PBS-NBC coverage of the 1992 Democratic National Convention. Um, she's served as vice president for research of the American Historical Association and vice president and chair of the Fund for Open Information and Accountability. She was co-founder and co-chair of the Freedom of Information and Access Committee of the Organization of American Historians, which was actively committed to maintaining the integrity of the Freedom of Information Act, or FOIA. Um, and I'd like to add that um, Professor Cook has been um, a wonderful mentor to me um, and um, to numerous others, and um, we thank her for her consistent generosity and activism. Uh, uh, Samuel Zip is, um, or Sandy Zip, is Associate Professor of American Studies and Urban Studies at Brown University. Um, he received his um, PhD in American Studies um, from Yale University. Um, he serves as Vice President of the Board of Down City Design, a community-based design studio in Providence, Rhode Island. His most recent book is The Idealist, Wendy Wilkie's Wartime Quest to Build One World, Belknap Press. Um, and he's all, and he's also written Manhattan Project: The Rise, sorry, Manhattan Projects: The Rise and Fall of Urban Renewal in Cold War New York, Oxford University Press. He co-edited um, Vital Little Plans: The Short Works of Jane Jacobs, Random House with Nate Storing. And over the years, he's written reviews and essays for magazines, journals, and newspapers, including the New York Times, Washington Post, The Nation. Public Books, The Baffler, Metropolis Cabinet, In These Times, and as he says a long time ago, Hotwired. Um, and with that, um, I'll hand the microphone um, and the, um, the, the, the chair to um, Professor Cook. Wow, thank you so much, Victoria, and you are my mentor. And I am very grateful to you. Your global vision is so important. Um, and now Sandy Zip is our mentor. This book is so important. We need Wendell Wilkie now, perhaps more than ever. Um, and uh, when, when I read your book, I was just inspired to think of all the times that Eleanor Roosevelt um, contemplated one world and peace, which she did from really from the 1920s on and or or before that. She actually becomes a member of Jane Addams group, the Women's International League for 
Peace and Freedom, which is founded in 1915, and Jane Addams and Lillian Wald um, and Carrie Chapman Catt are among her many mentors. When I was going through um, volumes one, two, and three, looking for the ways in which Eleanor Roosevelt confronted war and the danger of war and, you know, pursued the goal of peace, which has really been around. I mean, the idea that we have to have peace and human rights and that we won't have peace until we have human rights and dignity for all is bouncing around the world um, really for a very long time. Time And in 1920 or so, she gets involved with the movement to um, support the Kellogg-Briand Treaty. There's actually a treaty to outlaw war. And she invites 400 women to Hyde Park to launch the women's peace movement with Carrie Chapman Catt. And they, you know, Carrie Chapman Catt becomes the convener of the National Conference on the Cause and Cure of War. And there, she, she says, what we really have to have is a crusade, a crusade against war as mighty as the anti-slavery crusade. And that's the 1920s. Um, she writes articles. Um, she edits at this time something called the Women's Democratic News. And she writes articles about how women are organizing all over Europe. And in England, there are demonstrations. In London, there's a peace convergence of English and European women who seem to feel more deeply than we do. And of course, she understands that that is because they have seen the horrors of war in their own communities. And she calls for a movement. And this becomes, she says, long before the war, the war clouds gathered, her message was urgent. The time to prepare for world peace is during the time of peace and not during the time of war. Um, all, so let me, there's, there are so many, um, she becomes fervent about um, ending colonialism and she becomes part of the Free India Movement. Uh, she campaigns for the World Court and for the U.S. to join um, the League of Nations, and which the United States does not actually join. And she writes an article um, why wars must cease, why wars are obsolete. And I'd like to read the world conflagration of 1914 to 18 proved 
for the first time in our history that the war idea is obsolete. It achieved none of its objectives, which we were told in the U.S. was to preserve democracy and to prevent the people of Europe from coming under the control of a despotic government which had no regard for treaties or the rights of neutral nations. And above all, World War I was to end all future wars. And so in terms of these objectives, these four years were absolutely wasted. Then at Versailles, the horror was compounded. Instead of preventing future wars, the Versailles Treaty these settlements arrived at having arrived and have simply fostered hostility. There is more talk of war today, not to mention wars actually going on in the Far East and in South America than has been the case for many long years. The world over countries are armed camps. This is an article why wars must cease, why war is obsolete. And then she has an extraordinary paragraph about how we worship the gods of mammon. Private property, private profit is made out of the dead bodies of men. The more we see of the munitions business, of the use of chemicals, of the traffic in armaments, the more we realize that human cupidity is as universal as human heroism. If we are to do away with the war idea, one of the first steps will be to do away with all possibility of private profit. Is that prescient or what? Um, and then she says, what we need is for people to organize all around the world to persuade their governments to find the way to stop war. And she makes a series of speeches um, which were very controversial at the time because the U.S. was, quote, isolationist. And then there were, of course, right-wingers who absolutely despised her and wanted no, you know, part of the world court, which she was supporting and working for a wonderful woman named Esther Lape. And I just want to say... There is no biography of Esther Lape, L-A-P-E, who was a great hero, a really great hero of the peace movement and also um, the movement for a national health care program, which she lobbied for to get into the Social Security Act of 1935. It was supposed to be essentially socialized medicine, 1935. And didn't the AMA lobbied it to death and uh, she fought for that kind of medical reality, free health care that exists all over, you know, the industrial world now um, until her death 
1982, and there's no biography of this extraordinary woman. The bottom line is Eleanor Roosevelt, I could go on and on, um, really understood that human rights and peace, the end to war, were united when we have dignity for all, education for all, housing and health and jobs for all, then we will have peace for all and we are all in this together, one world. Thank you, Sandy Zip. Thank you so much, Blanche. Uh, thanks for everyone for having me. I'm gonna jump right in so we can get into more discussion. Um, Thanks to Victoria and Hekon for inviting me to, to talk with you all. And I'm so glad to be here with Blanche Wiesen-Cook because as she has really made clear, uh, Wendell Wilkie was to some degree a part of this larger tradition uh, of people like Eleanor Roosevelt that, that Blanche has just outlined here, who imagined a progressive, global, but mutualistic vision of America's place in the world. Unfortunately, I think that connection has been mostly, mostly lost. And in part, this is because Wilkie was not actually a, um, a, an integral part of the movements that, that uh, Blanche has just laid out for us. Right? He was not, in that sense, a pacifist. He was not part of a larger pacifist, movement, pacifist and anti-war movement going back into the early part of the 20th century, although he had, had connections to the campaign uh, for the League of Nations um, and various kinds of anti-racist campaigns as well, I'll mention in a little bit here. The other reason I think that, that we lose track of, of uh, why Wendell Wilkie is important in stories like this is because we don't actually know much about Wendell Wilkie himself. The story of Wendell Wilkie's world travels, his best-selling book, and the idea of one world have been hidden by a more conventional story surrounding Wilkie, one you might be familiar with if you're familiar with Wilkie at all. So most often when we hear about Wilkie today, we're most likely to recall the fact that he was the losing candidate in the 1940 presidential election in the United States. So he's thought of often as one of the most famous also-rans in U.S. history. And the story there is that he helped uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt to take the U.S. into World War II in a kind of um, team of rivals kind of uh, sort of model, right? He prepared the way for the fabled and now threatened liberal world order established during and just after World War II. Um, and I, I, you know, I think part, in a way, the story is sort of true, but I also want to suggest it's not his most important legacy. And that thinking of it as the central story surrounding Wilkie has obscured his, uh, what really should be thought of as his, his most important legacy, which is the fraught but consequential idea of one world. So I'll sketch out that vision here today, showing how he distilled ideas that Eleanor Roosevelt and others had long advocated for, and how he helped make them part of a sort of brief blazing moment during World War II when it seemed that they might actually be made true. Now, my book, um, The Idealist, which Victoria mentioned, just a little advertising here, uh, tells the story of Wendell Wilkie's journey around the world in 1942 and the rise and fall of that idea of one world as Wilkie understood it. It shows how he and that idea represented or symbolized some of the dilemmas of what we today offhandedly call globalization um, and presaged some of the dilemmas we are still facing three quarters of a century to go, ago. So I'm recalling that journey and the idea in the hope that the ideas might be of some use to all of us during our own times of global crisis, whether or not one subscribes entirely to the idealism of those one world ideas, 
um, we can still use it as a, a goad to our thinking and use it as a, as, as a goal, as Blanche has so, so nicely laid out. So the phrase one world uh, comes from a long tradition of internationalist thinking, um, but it also sort of became concretized as the title of Wilkie's 1943 bestseller. Um, as I said, he's not the, he wasn't the first to use the term. As we've heard, many internationalists with similar ideas had used it in one way or another. I think H.G. Wells used it very early on. Roosevelt and other, um, other thinkers in, in, in and around World War I used it. But it was really, in many ways, his vast popularity and visibility for a, a comparably very, comparatively very short time, the quasi-celebrity that he enjoyed during World War II that gave the term the power to signify a kind of whole worldview and brought it suddenly out into to a much larger audience than I think it had been, had had before. Uh, my book reveals the larger cultural history of this celebrity, how Wilkie's political fame arose at the heart of what I call the age of broadcasting, a time of radio networks, the news wires, syndication services, the newsreels, the picture magazines, right? This interwar moment, really, um, before the media fragmentation that would be unleashed in the wake of the television revolution of the 1950s and 60s, uh, this time where one could assemble this giant audience around uh, singular ideas. Now, in many ways, the one world worldview, we might call it, was quite simple. Wilkie announced it in the opening moments of the book. And I'm going to give you uh, throughout this little um, few remarks here, some, some sense of his language here. As he put it, there are no distant points in the world any longer. The airplane and a global war, he argued, had combined not only to shrink space, but also to push Americans towards a new understanding of their nation's political responsibilities. All the world's peoples were being drawn closer together, he said, while the United States in particular was now inescapably enmeshed with the rest of the world. He declared that, quote, our thinking in the future must be worldwide. Now, these insights were the product uh, not just of his long-held uh, interests in internationalism, but of the product of a journey that Wilkie took around the world in the late summer of 1942 to visit the battlefronts. Now, he was carrying messages to allied leaders from his former rival, uh, FDR. Um, he flew 31,000 miles in 49 days, making stops in the Middle East, the Soviet Union, and China. Upon his return to New York, 36 million people tuned in to hear his uh, report to the people, which is broadcast over all the radio networks. And One World, the book, which reached about 4 million readers when it was published in 1943, gave that vast audience an account of the trip and was the culminating act in Wilkie's rise to become a kind of popular icon of global idealism. So I tell the full story of the trip in the book, uh, in The Idealist, his stops across Africa, the Middle East, Russia, Asia, in Nigeria, Sudan, Egypt, Turkey, Lebanon, Palestine, Iraq, Iran, the Soviet Union, and China, and all the people he met in Cairo, Ankara, Beirut, Jerusalem, Baghdad, Tehran, Moscow, and Chongqing, from Charles de Gaulle to Joseph Stalin to Chiang Kai-shek, and a host of other leaders and ordinary people in between. And the book gives you a sense of what he encountered there, a world of insurgent peoples whose desire for freedom did not make it into the headlines and newsreels carrying war news around the globe. What he really discovered was a planet poised between two great world ordering forces, right? The European empires on the one hand, the British, the French, the Dutch, that had shaped the globe since the 19th century and before, and the new rising power of the United States, which was struggling with itself in these years to figure out how it would greet, understand, and interact with the world it was poised to dominate in the years after the war. In many ways, One World was really written for Americans to try to get them to actually confront the world as it was. And it was really most important uh, thing for Americans to understand that, that Wilkie wanted to try to get across 
was that what he called the oneness of the world was a new geopolitical and emotional reality that Americans had yet to, to really see and to really understand. In a speech in 1943, not long after the book came out, he said, quote, we can stop thinking of the world today as a geographical map, splotches of color that stand only for nations and national possessions. And we can begin to think of the human beings who live within those splotches of color as, a living, as living also within a larger map that marks a single world. So for him, there was this kind of new universal world space that offered a clear political lesson. The, the peace, he said, must be planned on a world basis, making real the full global interdependency that he hoped would push Americans to avoid the two threats to future world peace isolationism on the one hand and empire on the other, both of which were underpinned by what he called, quote, narrow nationalism. Now, however, Wilkie hoped to show Americans not only that single world, right, that universal world, but also a kind of sort of a new, what I think of as a new world geography. The world was not only becoming one, Wilkie argued, it was being reshaped. As he put it, perhaps the most significant fact in the world today, he wrote, is the awakening that is going on in the East. This realization pushed him to challenge Americans to see the demands uh, of the world's colonized peoples. He was, as he wrote uh, in the closing moments of One World, quote, only passing on an invitation which the peoples of the East have given us. So from the Middle East to China, lands under various degrees of current or historic sway to European powers, Wilkie made himself into a vehicle, a kind of medium, I think of it as, not only for the idea of a unified world, but also for the widespread demand that the freedom for which the Allies fought in the war should be extended unilaterally and without regard for colonialism. As he put it, men and women all over the world are on the march, physically, intellectually, and spiritually. They are no longer willing to be Eastern slaves for Western profits. The big house on the hill surrounded by mud huts has lost its awesome charm, right? Throughout the world, he said, freedom means the orderly but scheduled abolition of the colonial system. But what I think is also important to remember about Wilkie is that he didn't stop there. He was really issuing, as I've sort of suggested, a challenge to Americans as well. As he put it, the moral atmosphere in which the white race lives is changing. It is changing not only in our attitude toward the people of the Far East, it is changing here at home. The United States, he charged, had long, quote, practiced inside our boundaries something that amounts to race imperialism. Now, Wilkie had been involved in civil rights efforts for several years before his trip. Um, and his beliefs in equality, in fact, dated to his early years and efforts actually to fight the Ku Klux Klan in his native Midwest in the 1920s. Um, his progressive views had earned him the support of many African-Americans in the 1940 election to kind of split the African-American vote, really, in many ways, um, between him and, and FDR, um, and including the endorsement of major black newspapers like the Pittsburgh Courier. But it was his trip, I think, that really allowed him to see how American ideals of freedom were at stake and could be found wanting. During a war against fascism and militarism, when colonized peoples were making their freedom dreams known, the United States had to look to its own inequities as well if they were going to understand the world and what was at stake. It is becoming increasingly apparent to thoughtful Americans, he wrote, that we cannot fight the forces and ideas of imperialism abroad and maintain any form of imperialism at home. The war has done this to our thinking. Perhaps Eleanor Roosevelt would have suggested that we should have been thinking this way all along. But Wilkie is amongst many Americans who are suddenly waking up to these issues during the war, and both Roosevelt and, uh, 
and, and Wilkie were, were, were carrying this message home. I think Wilkie and Roosevelt were really almost alone, right? So, well, maybe we'd say that they're at sort of the top of the heap, the, uh, as mainstream white political figures with the cultural reach to access literally millions of American homes, right? Eleanor Roosevelt in her My Day column and Wilkie in many of his writings in labeling domestic segregation as akin to colonialism, as a kind of imperialism at home. Um, and it would be interesting to, to compare notes here with Blanche about how far Eleanor Roosevelt was able to go in this, given how she had to be careful about what she needed to say, given her husband's policies. Wilkie took it as part of his job to try to push FDR on many of these things in public, and he could do that in a way that perhaps, in some cases, Eleanor, Eleanor Roosevelt couldn't. Anyway, the big challenge of the war, Wilkie argued, was that it showed how the fate of the United States rested on challenges that were both within and beyond the nation's borders. He, she, he really wanted to see how these were interpenetrated, right? Really picking up a theme from, from Eleanor Roosevelt's ideas and those ideas of many of those earlier progressive era figures like Jane Addams and, and, and the others who, who, who founded organizations like the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, right? To really, to really have, have Americans imagine that their fate rested with the rest of the world's fate. So it's kind of a sense of reciprocity with the world that he's trying to, to inculcate. American power and independence in the post-war world, Wilkie argued, would require embracing interdependence with others. Interdependence with the world was in turn dependent on the independence of subject peoples, both at home and abroad. And so the nation's freedom to act in the post-war world required it to work to end colonialism and racism, both at home and abroad. As he put it, the way to make certain that we do recover our traditional American way of life with a rising standard of living for all is to create a world in which all men everywhere can be free. So basically, to sum up, Wilkie's newly interdependent world, his shrinking world, was intended to call into question rather than reaffirm unquestioned assumptions about American or even Western dominance. The lack of capacity for self-governance in the colonized world, a very common mainstream idea amongst white countries in those years, or in, in relation to that, the hierarchies of race that undergirded those assumptions. The United States, he argued, was enmeshed in, in a larger world in which its power relied on its efforts to advance the freedom of the peoples of the globe, not just the United States' promise that it abstractly stood for that freedom around the world. Now, at the same time, I should say, and I'll go, I go into this in much greater detail in my book, Wilkie wasn't entirely free of nationalist impulses. Um, let me just say for now that he challenged Americans, as I've just said, but he also was not immune to the idea that the U.S. could fix the world. His worldview in some ways depended in many ways on the centrality of the United States. In fact, he thought that one of the things that bound all people together in the new one world was fondness for the United States. Uh, one of the most important things binding the world together, he wrote, was, quote, the mixture of respect and hope with which the world looks to this country. So by that measure, the United States sat at the heart of the world's expectations. The opportunity and power lay not with those levying demands for freedom, but with Americans. The implication was that the interdependency sought could be guaranteed only by the presence and power of the U.S. to protect it. This note in his ideas suggested how in later years the idea of one world could be reduced to a vision of American global sway against his, I think, ideas and many of the ideas of others who, who, who had, had, had uh, promulgated these ideas earlier. But in this version of it, the nation's supposedly benevolent influence over a unified globe uh, occluded the very presence of American empire and power itself. 
So I hope I've given you a sense of how Wilkie embodied in some sense the dilemmas of global interdependence. He popularized the idea of one world, an anti-racist view of the world that hoped to create a more democratic shape for future world order, one that hoped to end empire and give smaller countries a greater role on the world stage. And in the book, you can read about how that vision fared during the founding of the United Nations and the coming of the Cold War. But what I've hoped to share with you today is how Wilkie's vision reflected not only the ambivalent and charged dilemmas of his own moment, but of, of the globalized times we all live in today. And as I try to show in the conclusion to my book, Wilkie's ideas predicted our own times. Like other internationalists, he suggested the way that some kind of widely shared ethos of global connection that went beyond the formal governance and even cooperation of nation states would be necessary to handle the increasingly global challenges of modern life. But the recalcitrant current of nationalism that also worked its way through his ideas suggested how hard this would be to achieve and how it's still out there for us to achieve today. You know, I think we can all see this, particularly now in this time of a global pandemic, the brutal effects of which have been accelerated here in this country by a sense that the U.S. can and should just somehow go it alone. And the Russian invasion, of course, of Ukraine should only underline this. This is not America's world anymore, if it ever was. And a reinvigorated form of global cooperation is going to be the only way forward in a time of war, in a time of pandemic, in a time of climate change. You've listened to a New Diplomatic History podcast. For more podcasts, go to newdiplomatichistory.org slash podcasts. They're available on Apple, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Thank you for listening.